Hello and welcome to Tape Ops Discussion, where we call our friends and music community notables to chat about their favorite records. Enjoy. Jeff. Mr. Rubel. How are you? I'm good, man. How are you? Let me, uh, let me go hit the record button. I'll be right back. Welcome to Discussion. I'm Jeff Stanfield, and this week we have producer-engineer Mark Rubel discussing the band's 1969 release, The Band. Very good. So, uh, The Band, The Brown Album, the second band record. I don't know, I always feel weird saying The Band, The Band. Why did you choose this one to chat about today? This record meant a lot to me as I was really getting interested in in music. Uh, I guess I was 11 when it came out, and that was right at the time when I became a bass player. Um, you know, I was in, in New York visiting my grandmother at the time of Woodstock and desperately tried to talk her into going to the festival, which, of course, would have made a good screenplay, but there's no way it was going to happen. Um, but, you know, I, I had... Um, it, it, this record, I think, really marks the beginning of my deep connection with music. I always loved it from when I was a little kid, but uh, and with uh, non-classical music, I'd actually been listening to, you know, Vivaldi and <laughs> the Goldberg Variations and that kind of thing up to that point. And the way I got into rock music is funny and slightly embarrassing, which is my parents went to see the uh, Easy Rider movie, <laughs> I guess that same year, 1969, and they came home with the soundtrack for the movie, uh, you know, and gave it to me and said, here it is. This soundtrack has uh, some of that rock music in it. We thought you'd like it. You know, uh, I mean, I, I had been listening to other stuff before that, I guess, the Beatles and so on. But this record meant a lot to me, I think partly just because of how many times I listened to it and what it represented in my mind and uh, and in the way that it it is emblematic of the way that I got connected to music and have remained so. Going back to it, you know, it's pretty loose. I mean, it still has a lot of humanity in it. it it's, it's so far before Pro Tools and Grids, and there's just a really nice looseness and band feel to this record that I really appreciate. I agree. It's a, it's, it's, it's a beautiful example of what I think a record can be, capturing the humanity of the people that made it. Uh, and the the imperfections in it are glorious. Uh, the way, you know, half the endings of the songs are, uh, everybody hits that last chord at a different time. Uh, you know, the extent to which is out of tune, which is something that I, I think people uh, need to appreciate more. You know, I think partly it was just the instruments at the time and that they were teaching themselves to play horns and weren't particularly in tune, and none of them sang all that, you know, perfectly in tune, and there's so much soul in that. Uh, you know, I, I suppose they might have had strobe tuners at the time, but I'm I'm convinced that the advent of digital tuners and instruments that played better in in tune wasn't necessarily a good thing for music. There's a kind of a width to the harmonics that you get when everything isn't perfectly lined up, and that's what adds so much vibrancy to it and and character. And you know, the record itself is so much about imperfection. You know, it, it's about humans striving and uh it's 
you know, even in those days, there were records that sounded pretty perfect. Sure. You know, I mean, even the Beatles records, which now from a different perspective, I can see that they were idiosyncratic and not all that well in tune either. But there was something kind of blinding about the Beatles stuff because it was so iconic that it just seemed like it was all meant to be there as if it had been discovered. But with the band, it really felt like uh, an insight into not only a certain kind of humanity, but how a community, you know, a band being a small community can be larger than the sum of its parts. And uh, just the, the whole sound and approach and production of it, it's very um, cinematic to me. And the, the, the characters uh, all seem very, very much larger than life, kind of almost hyper-human and hyper-real. This record has the spirit of people all in a room making a record together. And if you look at the credits, you realize that, like you said, almost everyone on the record's playing horns. Um, there's multiple singers. There's two keyboard players. It, it's just, it seems like a collective effort rather than, um, you know, a singular uh, leader of a band and then, you know, kind of filling in the gaps with... Uh, you know, session players or having the band kind of fill in. It really does seem like a collective effort. I, I think so. Again, uh, I guess I keep comparing them with the Beatles, but, uh, you know, the the same kind of thing where you don't, it's not John Lennon and the Beatles, or it's not Robbie Robertson or Levon Helm and the band, uh, that especially in the band, it, it feels very collective and, and uh, the, you know, all those different interesting and sort of semi-broken sounding personalities blending together. And they were literally living in that house with their dogs and children and, you know, uh, hanging out during the day and then recording all night with some chemical help, I understand. But it's, uh, you know, to record in an ad hoc situation like that was, uh, you know, I think they had to talk the record company into doing it. And, you know, Les Paul had been recording at home, but especially for a, a major label recording, that wasn't, you know, wasn't done uh, quite as often as certainly it is now. You know, one of the things that makes it both interesting, this recording, and also a little bit hard to see is that it set the precedent for so much of what happens now. That You get a lot of people making uh, interesting, larger-than-life sounding, all everybody playing the same room records. And certainly even, you know, one of the sources of fascination for me was the just the cover, you know. I, I had no idea how it was made or who made it at the time. But I had the album cover, which was a size that you could actually it you know look at it. And we would sit and listen to those things in to this record in, you know, giant cost headphones that made you look like you were landing a small airplane and stare at the photos and kind of pour over all this stuff for clues. You know, I, I was in a wonderful but somewhat isolated Midwestern town, you know, Champaign, Illinois. Looking back on it, I didn't realize it was the musical mecca that it turns out it was, but um, something like that was like getting a, being on a desert island and uh, something exotic washes up on the shore. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it was so different from everything else that was happening in 1969. You know, there was a lot of, I mean, the Doors were playing and Hendrix was playing and Janis Joplin was out there, the psychedelia. All these bands uh, and all of this glam psychedelia, and then you look at them, and they look like they were straight from the 1860s. You know, it was a sepia-colored photo of these guys with 
facial hair. They look like lumberjacks or sailors or something like that. Totally. <laughs> you know, and it just, uh, it really made me wonder, and it, and it, it, it just seemed like, you know, a album cover being about the size of a window. It was like a window onto another world. And, uh, of course, you do what you would do with literature or a record. You try and reconstruct what what led to that happening. And, you know, I think at the time, i sure I felt like an outsider where I was, as I always do. Uh, and I just imagined the, the whole, this whole world that they were from. I mean, I, I could barely imagine them having electricity, probably. <laughs> you know, uh, but I was also interested in literature even then, and things like Winesburg, Ohio, or the Spoon River Anthology. That was what this record felt like, little vignettes of American characters. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just just the way they looked. I mean, it's so funny because now, you know, that's every band from the Northwest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it, is, it is funny because they looked so um, unusual and out of place at the time, and now they could look like that and they would t- fit in anywhere. And yet somebody who was going around in, in the psychedelic glam attire would, would stick out more than they would have then. So they were, they were ahead of their time in more than one way. Yeah. And I, you know, lyrically again, the, the, it, there are, they are such great stories and it's, it is like a, a story of, of, uh, a different America and, a you know, classic Americana, um, stories and characters, which is, you know, it gives you an, uh, We've been talking about a lot about this lately that, you know, there are cool sounding records, but, you know, over time, the ones that don't have great lyrics in these stories seem to fade into the background a little more. And and these are the types of records that you you can just you can dig a little deeper. And I think you you really nailed it with like looking in the looking at the cover and trying to decipher and listening to these tunes. And, and there was so much mystery and, and I feel like this record still gives in that way. Um, no matter how many times you've listened to it, um, there's, I always find something interesting and cool about it. Um, do you have any favorite tracks on this or standouts that, that, uh, you know, that you love? I, I do, and one of the things that I love about it is how it holds together as an album and how it moves from song to song, even how the keys go. I think it was a, a great example of uh, a, a longer-form work made up of, of smaller bits. Um, but I don't know, there's, there's so much... Uh, there's so many of those songs. Um, I guess it's in, you know, in the way that they, that they fit together. Oh, I love them all. It's, it's funny, I, I love them all, there's, and there's one song that I really didn't like at the time that I've grown to like. So it's, it's funny, uh, I love them all, but the song Jawbone always made me uncomfortable, and I think it's the way their voices slide at the beginning. It sounds like you're starting up a turntable from zero, and it slides up to the note. That always made me uncomfortable, and it's also in an odd time meter. It's in 6-4, it's unusual.
doesn't bother me as much now because I, I like the rhythmic parts of it. But uh, it, it actually be hard for me to choose. I mean, when I hear Unfaithful Servant, and I didn't know who Rick Danko was at the time, but just the heartbroken and heartbreaking sound of his voice was, was transporting. And, you know, if it weren't for his bass playing, I would probably be doing something other than what I get to do now. Unfaithful servant I hear you leaving soon in the morning What did you do to the lady That she's gonna have to send you away Unfaithful servant You know, I loved the sound of his bass. It sounded very tuba-like, even though on, on, on some of the songs there is actually tuba. I think Rag Mama Rag is John Simon, their producer, playing tuba. But it sounded very tuba or bassoon-like. You know, it wasn't, didn't sound like your typical Fender precision bass, whether distorted or undistorted. And his, the, the melodic quality and his fills and his, you know, his rhythm uh, were all great. And, you know, as a rhythm section, they were wonderful. But it's also really funny how, uh, what a funny groove that band had. You know, sort of a herky-jerky, like a carriage with one flat wheel. You know, it wasn't, it, it was a, wasn't anything like Motown or any of the slicker stuff or whatever. Um, and partly it's because, I think it was because Levon was singing and playing drums at the same time. And that, for one thing, you've got a microphone in front of your face, so you're limited on, you can't really flail around, so the, a lot of the fills are very simple and straight ahead. And uh, I think it also, it changes your phrasing when you're drumming and singing at the same time, which is really hard to do. It's the old pat your belly and top of your head at the same time. Um, but it, that was true, I think, for the whole band, you know, the, it wasn't, it was far from slick or smooth in a completely fascinating way. And, you know, now I know that in many cases, Levon was playing something else. He was playing saxophone or mandolin. And somebody else, Richard, would play drums. But uh, just um, every one of those songs is like a different personality and a different character. And the way that they would effortlessly swap uh, lead vocals, you know, and, and the way that they would... Uh, and also the sound of their harmonies, which were celestial and, and beautiful and also um, just very ragged and human and emotional. You know, what, what do you bring from this record to your work today? So much. It's, it's funny. I, I have to say I don't listen to this record much anymore. I listened to it the other day because we're going to have a conversation. But I don't think I really have to because it's in my DNA. Uh, and I think that this record informed my basic philosophy of making records, that we're capturing 
Well, there, there are two aspects to it. It's, it's, there's a, it's a dual aspect to it, but we're capturing or creating a moment. Um, and this was, seems like a beautiful capture of these very idiosyncratic people. It, in a room, you can hear the room, you can picture the room, you know, and you can picture all the guys. I picture them like old hound dogs sitting on a porch howling, you know. Uh, and it's very evocative. And so that is something that I, I love to do is to try and capture the – or collect, I call it, rather than capture – to try and collect the feeling of people making music in a room together. That's a beautiful thing. So that's one aspect of it that uh, I aspire to. Um, but another one is that it's also art. And art is an artifact, but it's also artifice. And – one of the things that's funny about the band was you think about them and, and you go, oh, it's Americana. There's nothing more American than this. There was one American in the group. Everybody else were Canadians who were, of course, North American. But, um, <laughs> you know, in a way, this is like the, the zeal of the converted. Uh, they were more American than Americans. Uh, they were connected to things, you know, I mean, obviously the night they drove old Dixie down, they were connected to previous time at a time where it felt like everybody was overturning tradition and it was going to be a a new world, the age of Aquarius, right? Everything was, uh, you didn't see that kind of connection to history. Uh, you know, even on their, on their first record, when they had a picture that was next of kin, and it was them with all their aunts and uncles and kids and parents, that was a time where, in a way, it was fashionable to pretend you had no relatives and it was uncool to have parents. And for them to show how they were connected to history and to their their community was was wonderful but what i meant to say is the the artifice part of it is also beautiful you know it's beautiful acting and scene setting uh you can picture these characters you can picture the situation and uh it's it's beautifully boiled down and it's beautifully presented since all recordings are artificial right we we might think there's somebody in the room with us but it is a couple of pieces of motorized cardboard moving the air in particular patterns that connect us to a time and a place and a person. Um, and the, uh, the artfulness with which that was done is, is truly something to aspire to, I think. What's your favorite song on the record? I'm a sucker for uh, Up on Cripple Creek, and I think, I think the reason is that exactly what you noted in that the groove is just you could put that tune to any band and and it would they would never be able to accomplish the way that that fits together in this like jalopy-esque <laughs> sort of way i i liken a lot of it to the way that the the grateful dead groove together i think that um and the way that some funk out of new orleans uh, worked as a band um, mm -hmm. but you know there's a certain sort of bubbling and and uh, you know like if you have a pot on a stove and it's on a low simmer and then like you've got different size bubbles coming up to the surface and popping and there's little ones and there's big ones and they all kind of are making this symphony of a of a stew and and that's sort of how I hear that tune and and a lot of this record This mountain, you know where I want to go. 
Across the Great Divide, I think that I love how it just sort of, it's almost like a show opening, like the curtain opens and you get a little, a little taste of sort of what's about to happen and boom, you're in the chorus. Standing by your window in pain, pistol in your hand, and I beg you, dear Molly girl, try and records like Abbey Road, et cetera. And, and because I think it, it's a top to bottom, uh, listening experience and, and I, you know, that's missing from a lot of records today. I don't know that albums are, are always considered and, and this certainly was in this instance, you know, I, I agree. It's, it's like a photo album. Yeah. These, these vignettes of, of people and, you know, have to keep in mind in 1969 music, was at the center of of society and culture and history, and it was a historic time where things were changing, uh, very much like now. But at, at the, that time, music really was, at, you know, at the center of it, and it was meaningful. Uh, I think everybody was looking for uh, perspectives and ways of looking at things, and this was a unique one. I think it's just uh, you know it it's, it captures the essence of of that time in in a different way. You know, it was a rural way and a way that was connected to a time, you know, even before the Industrial Revolution, uh, which had, had clues in it of how to go forward, I think. Mm. It's a, a, I have a funny story about it, which is uh, my copy of the album skipped at, in uh, Unfaithful Servant. And every time I hear the song, I know exactly where that spot is, and I expect it to happen again. <laughs> that it's a, you know, it's an indication of what an album was, that it was a physical object that you could hold on to, and it was unique in the world, and it was yours. You know, I, uh, the world opened for me when I went to this place called Record Service, which was an old, which wasn't old at the time, but it was a hippie record store. And uh, to go up the stairs, and there would be a hippie and a handlebar mustache, and there'd be incense and blacklight posters. It was visiting another world, and uh, certainly an exciting one. And to be able to carry a little bit of that home with you at a time when you're trying to figure out what the world is going to be and where you will be in it was uh, magical.
As an English literature major, I think I approach record making as storytelling or, you know, movie making, I call them movies for your ears. And uh, I think this is a great example of that. It, and just uh, when I was thinking about it, I looked up the first lines of the Spoon River anthology, and I think they fit this record. Let me read it to you, Edgar Lee Masters. The first poem is called The Hill, and I'll just read you the first three lines. It says, Where are Elmer, Herman, Bert, Tom, and Charlie, the weak of will, the strong of arm, the clown, the boozer, the fighter, all, all are sleeping on the hill. And that is what that record feels like to me. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Jeff. It's great talking with you, and thanks for doing this. Yeah, man, and we should do it again sometime. We don't have to do it just once. I've got lots of ideas. I know you do. <laughs> Justice on the beach, Thanks for listening. Discussion is created by Tape Op, the creative music recording magazine. Free subscriptions are available at tapeop.com, along with our regular podcast and online content.